He said something to Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 18, verse 7, that kind of encapsulizes the idea of the hated word, the hated truth. He told Jehoshaphat, he said, There is yet one man. So he was asked, Is there no man by whom we can inquire of God? He said, Oh, there's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Why? Because he never prophesied good unto me, but always evil. The same is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. He hated Micaiah because Micaiah spoke the truth. He couldn't prophesy good to Ahab. He was one of the most wicked men who ever lived in this world. So what good things could Micaiah say to Ahab? He simply spoke the truth and for that he was hated. Jeremiah knew about that attitude toward God's word, didn't he? Jeremiah, one of the great prophets who lived in this world and worked for God and and no one would listen to him. But he tells us why. He said, the prophets prophesy falsely, Jeremiah 5.31, and the priests bear rule by their means and my people love to have it so. That takes us all the way back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. And he tells Timothy, he warns him, these people are going to want to hear false teaching. They're going to heap to themselves false teachers. And they're going to want to have their ears scratched. The things that they hear, they want to hear a certain thing. It doesn't have to be the truth. That's what was happening in Jeremiah's day. Nothing has changed, right? What about Balak? Balak hated the word of God spoken by Balaam, didn't he? He didn't want to hear that. Paul asked those in Galatia, Galatians 4, verse 6, he said, am I, or verse 16, he said, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They began to harbor ill will toward Paul because he spoke the truth. That sounds like King Ahab. We're talking about people who have obeyed the gospel, those who had dedicated themselves to Christ. Now they're acting like one of the most evil kings of the northern kingdom. But it becomes clear when we look at these examples of the hated truth and why people hate the truth. Who hates the truth? Those who don't want to obey it. We don't see any example of someone who wants to be obedient to God hating the truth. But why do they hate it? Why don't they want to be obedient to it? I think that's a question we need to understand. We're going to talk about the hated truth, but we need to understand why it's hated. And I believe if we can understand why it's hated, we can understand what it needs to do in our lives and the things we need to do in order to make our lives what they ought to be so that we can stand justified in front of God and man and and be the people God needs and wants us to be. Why is the truth the hated truth? Well, it is hated because it displays in the person who he really is. That's our first point. The hated truth displays. And one thing it displays is humanity's arrogance. Humanity's arrogance. You know, there have been so many people throughout the world who've tried to usurp the power of God, who've opposed the truth, and they've done it so arrogantly. Have you ever listened to an avowed atheist as as they give an interview? And, you know, if you have a certain belief, that's your business, right? God gives us that opportunity. If you don't want to believe in Him, no problem. Well, it will be a problem in the end, but it's your right 
as a free will person whether to accept God or not. But have you ever noticed, I I've, I've have listened to, I can't think of, of one, but very few at least, people who were avowed atheists that did not have an arrogant attitude toward God. You know, what's wrong with simply saying, I don't believe that? Instead, they want to talk about the myth in the sky. They want to talk about the Santa Claus in the sky. They want to talk about all of these disparaging remarks because they're arrogant. They've usurped the power of God. They've placed themselves in His position because they worship themselves. That's arrogant. That's arrogant. I'm going to mention a name to you. And it could be a Jeopardy answer, I guess, because he's obscure in the history of the world. Who is Voltaire? Who is Voltaire? Now, if we have some people who are interested in French poetry, we have some people who are involved in academia in some way, they may be able to answer that question. But it is uh, uh, meaningless in our world today. He doesn't impact us in any way whatsoever. But Voltaire was a French poet. And more than 100 years ago, he bragged that in another century, the Bible will be destroyed. It will be buried in obscurity. And he said, I'll go down in history as the man who did it. Now, if I had not mentioned Voltaire and hadn't mentioned the, uh, the question to really would be a Jeopardy answer because that's, a, that's about what he's been relegated to. How many of you would have thought about Voltaire today? How many of you thought about the Bible? Everybody's here, right? Because we talk, that's why we're here. We talk about the Bible. I would suggest most people would not recognize his name even if it were called because he's meaningless to the world. He doesn't impact us in any way whatsoever. He's largely been forgotten to the, uh, to the world. He, he has been forgotten into history, the annals of history, unless, again, you're, you are in the, the circles of academia, you're interested in French poetry, of which I'm neither. And so the only reason I know about Voltaire is I, kinda, I gather up useless information. It seems like it sticks in my mind. And so I can tell you about Voltaire, not that it helps me in any way. But that's about where it is with Voltaire. He's dead. And the Bible's being printed more today than it ever has been printed. Certainly it hasn't been destroyed and buried in obscurity, but he has. He has died. He has been buried in obscurity for the most part. You recall King Herod when he, he tried to placate the ruling Jews by having James murdered. And he is the same king who had Peter and John imprisoned for preaching in the name of Jesus, all because they were preaching the hated truth. But do you remember his end? What was his end? And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. Look in Acts chapter 12 verse 23. But why did the angel of the Lord smite him? Because he gave not glory, gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. He tried to destroy the truth. He tried to stop the truth. And he was destroyed by God. He was buried in obscurity. The only reason we know about Herod is because he's been left for us as a lesson. If it weren't for that, we would have never heard about him. He was left for us to learn from his arrogant mistakes. He tried to destroy the truth, but the exact opposite happened. Look at the very next verse. But the word of God grew and multiplied. 
We're not going to destroy the Word of God. No one is. People will try to hamper it. They've been doing that for years. We go back to Jezebel. She tried to destroy the world. She opposed the truth. She opposed the words of God spoken by both Elijah and Micaiah, both prophets of the Lord. But she met her end by being destroyed in her carcass eaten by dogs. The only thing left of her were her hands. We read about that in 2 Kings 9, beginning with verse 37. But guess what continued to take place? God's truth continued to be taught. The truth is hated because it displays humanity's arrogance, but it displays something else. It displays sin accurately. It displays sin accurately. We read earlier how men loved darkness over light. They would prefer to be in darkness and that they didn't want the light of the gospel to shine upon them. And that is because they wanted to live in sin and the Bible depicts that for us. But that's the very purpose of the gospel, isn't it? To depict sin, to demonstrate and to display sin accurately so we can understand, so we can be equipped properly to be able to combat that. It displays to us how to avoid losing our souls. That's what we need more than anything. And in doing that, it must display sin accurately. You know, a lot of people want to hear the gospel, but they want to hear it the way they want to hear it, right? They don't want to hear certain aspects of the gospel that causes us to have to change the way we live. We want the gospel to fit us instead of us fitting the gospel. And I say us in general terms, referring to the world. That's not how it can be, right? They don't want to arrange their lives. Well, James talked about that, James 1, 23 through 25. He used the example of looking into the the, the law of God. It's like a man looking into a mirror. He looks into a mirror and he sees himself accurately. And then he walks away and he forgets what he saw. You know, when we look into a mirror, it shows us for what we are, right? Now here's the thing. We may not like what we see. We may look into a mirror, we may not like what we see, but there's nothing that can happen to change that unless that person in the mirror changes. Right? I look into the mirror and and I may need to lose a few pounds. Well, you know what? That's never going to happen unless that individual in the mirror does that. And who is that? That's me. We may look into the mirror, or we may know some people who look into a mirror, and they may see someone needs to really work on their hygiene just a little bit, right? Is that going to change unless that person in the mirror does that? But see, we look in the mirror, and then we go away, and And, you know, what I'm seeing in my mind is the young man who was 23 years old. Not the the older man who's almost 48, right? I don't want to see that. But that can't change unless the one in the mirror changes it. And we can't back our age up, but, you know, we can do a little better than what we do, probably. But see, that's the illustration. We look into a mirror, it shows us exactly who we are. The only way that can change is if that person changes it. When we look into the perfect law of liberty, and that's what James called it, and we see how it displays who we are. It can display arrogance. It can display sin accurately. We may see someone who is 
ugly and shameful, spiritually speaking. So how do we change that? Do I just go away and after reading in my Bible and I say, yeah, I agree with that. How do I change that? Well, nothing changes unless something changes, right? And so I have to change that. It displays sin accurately and I have to format my life to make that better for me. The truth is hated because it displays and it's hated because it demands. That's our second point. The truth demands and because the people of the world have allowed themselves to become reprobate, the truth demands change. That's the whole problem, isn't it? We've become reprobate. We've become rebellious. We have come to want to do what we want to do instead of what God wants. Isaiah described God's people saying this, Isaiah 53 verse 6, He said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All down through history, I don't see anything has changed. Do you? Oh, we have the remnant, but we're talking in general. And the remnant seems perhaps at times gets smaller, maybe gets a little bigger, gets smaller, gets just a little bigger, gets even a little smaller. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of back and forth with the remnant. But in general, what's changed? Paul said... Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. That doesn't mean we can't become righteous. That means that we have to become righteous, right? It's not like the Jewish system any longer. We're not born into God's family and we're born righteous. And No, that's not how it is. We learn about what God wants us to do. Then we're born into the family. We can become righteous. A few verses later, he said, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, we can't be righteous on our own. We have to have the word of truth for that. And it's hated. It's hated. But we cannot become righteous on our own. That's why God has presented the truth to us. That's why He's given that to us in His great wisdom. He made a way for man to come up out of that fallen state. Speaking about the church, Paul called it the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, verse 11. And he tells us it was purposed in Christ Jesus. He knew what what we needed, what we would need. The truth demands the reprobate to change. But how do we do that? How do we meet that demand? Repentance. We must repent right throughout history. It seems as if the world has continually gone in the wrong direction. I don't understand. Well, I understand, but isn't it sad that, that we allow ourselves to do those things and to fall so low, knowing better? It's sad. We have to do something about that. People have lived in sin. They've served Satan instead of God. They've wanted to please themselves instead of pleasing the Creator of all things. And I don't understand why we allow that mindset to take place in our lives, but it does from time to time. So how do we, how do we get around that? How do we overcome that? You recall when Jesus was asked about the Tower of Siloam falling on those people, and the idea was... They had lived in such a terrible way that God was punishing them and, and, uh, and caused that tower to fall upon them. We find that in Luke chapter 13. Well, Jesus answered that because He had a group of people talking to Him that were as bad or worse than those who were killed by the Tower of Siloam. And He said, I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. 
Everyone needs to repent. They weren't crushed simply because uh, of their lifestyles. But everybody's going to be destroyed who does not repent. And when he said that, it was not his intention that just those in the audience who were listening to it at that time would obey his words. That has carried on down through time. It's been with us for for 2,000 years. And to show that universal command, Paul, talking to the Athenians, Acts chapter 17, he demanded from them in verse 30, he said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And here's the problem. I think we can all understand this. What's the problem? Well, no one wants to change. We like what we like, and that's what we want to do. We want to continue in the same way that it's been going all along, and that's not what's going to save us. We have to change. We have to repent. Have you ever seen someone, or maybe we've even done it ourselves, who made an excuse for something in our lives that we enjoy, and so we try to figure out a way that the Bible says it's okay? See, the truth is hated because it displays who a person is. It demands that we change. The truth is hated also because it declares. It displays, it demands, and it declares. We can trust the truth, can't we? The truth declares salvation. It declares salvation. If we want to be saved, it's very easy to dig out what God says. He's very plain. He's not the author of confusion, Paul said. He will tell us what He wants us to know. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants to give us the way to get into heaven and He's going to show us the road map and He wants all who will come to join Him there. As we read the Bible, God has never requested our opinions on how to be saved. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. How many people can agree on the same thing? Very few at one time, right? Very few. The more people you get, the less you have in agreement. He's never wanted us to suggest to Him a good way to be saved. He simply told us how to be saved. And I'm appreciative of that. To Jesus, it's a simple matter of obedience. To most of the world, it's a matter of contention. No one wants to agree on how to be saved. The good thing is we don't have to agree with it. my, My salvation is not based on whether the world agrees with God or not. My salvation is whether I will be obedient to God's plan of salvation, right? Even during the Old Testament, God delivered to Moses not the Ten Suggestions, right? He delivered the Ten Commandments. It were very simple, very straightforward. Don't worship idle gods. Don't honor any other god. Those made up the first three commandments. And then he went in and he, he began to talk about things we can't do. Don't kill, very plain. Don't murder. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't covet, right? Honor the Sabbath day. Honor the day God has set aside in His memory. See, it's very plain. But the problem, again, is we don't want to be told what to do. What do the psychologists of today say? Well, they say, well, you need to suggest. And that way, if you suggest, and then you begin to carry it out, The people following you will believe in their minds. They came up with it, and and it's a good idea. God doesn't listen to psychologists, and neither should we. God says this is what we need to do. Very simple, very plain, and that's what we need to do, right? We cannot agree with those who said you can't make a demand. 
never make a demand of anyone. I think that may be one of the problems in our world today. No one wants a demand place. Who are you to make a demand? Well, God's the creator of all things. He can demand what He wants. He's always going to do that which is right. I don't have to completely understand why He chose what He chose. I just have to understand what it does for me, right? Today's psychologists are not who we need to look to. Today's humanists are not what, who we need to look to. The problem with not making a demand on someone is Second Peter 1.21 The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. A demand was placed on them. It was declared to them. And they did what God asked. Jesus said this, John eight twenty four. I say therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. That's a demand. We have, to, we have to believe on Jesus that He is who He said He was. That's a demand. We can't get around that. He declared that, right? He declared that we will repent. We already looked at that, Luke 13, verse 3. He declared that we... Confess Him before men, Luke 12, verse 8. That's a, that's a, he declared a, de, a demand, a commandment, right? He didn't leave that up to interpretation. The, 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 the holy men of God did not prophesy according to their interpretation of something. God gave them the message. They simply repeated it. Jesus demanded baptism, Mark 16, 16. He demands faithful living, Matthew 10, And if we will just simply mold our lives to His demands and His declarations, we won't have any problems. Not one of those statements was a suggestion made by Jesus. They were all declarations of demands. And that's what He expects. The truth is hated because it does make declaration concerning salvation, but it declares something else. The truth, the hated truth, will declare the sentence given to every person who stands in judgment on that last day. Christ was very plain when He said, John 12, beginning with verse 48, He said, He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not My words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same should judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of Myself, but the Father which sent Me. He gave Me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Christ Himself was declared to abide by demand. So why would I think I shouldn't? No one likes the idea of being judged, but that's exactly what's going to happen on the last day. Every single person who's ever took a breath of life in this world will stand in judgment and they will receive the sentence based on their obedience to God, whether they were patriarchs, whether they lived under the old law of Moses, or whether they live under the Christian dispensation. Yet about 2,500 years of the patriarchal law, about 1,500 years of the law of Moses, and we're in about 2,000 years of this third and final dispensation. Right? The judgment is certain. It's coming. It's one of the most talked about subjects in the Bible. We better prepare for it. Again, why did God or why did Paul command that all men everywhere to repent? Let's look at the next verse, Acts 17, verse 31. He said, Because he hath, talking of God, appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's going to be a righteous judgment. 
by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Well, how do I know I can trust Jesus? Well, God declared it to us by raising him from the dead. The man came out of the grave on his own. So I can trust him. That's why Solomon said, Ecclesiastes 12, beginning with 13, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. Why? Because God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So we have to ask the question, how certain is death? It's just as certain as the judgment. Both are coming. Both are coming. The writer of Hebrews warned, And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. When we think of death and judgment, we better be thinking of heaven and hell because that's what it composes. That's what it's all about. Jesus pictured the judgment scene in Matthew 25, 31 through 33 with uh, goats, on the right, or, or goats on the left hand and sheep on the right hand. And the ones on the right hand were entered into glory. That's what's going to happen. Those who were sheep were sheep. That's how God describes His people. Now there are two possibilities, right? He goes on in that same chapter and He talks about those who will inherit the kingdom or those who did the things to enter into that kingdom which was prepared from the foundation of the world. He's talking about an obedience. He's talking about punishment to those who would not obey. If the Lord were to return right now, we don't know if He will. He very well may. I don't know. He hasn't told us. What would we hear? Would we hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of thy Lord? Would we hear that? Or would we hear, Depart from me, I don't even know who you are. So we have to ask that question. We have to understand where we find that. We find that answer from the hated truth. And we don't hate the truth. The world hates the truth. Paul said, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let us never let time pass if we're not in a position to enter into the rest of our Lord. If He offers rest, we need to accept it. Let us never find ourselves in a position where we have stepped outside the covenant relationship God has blessed us with. We've stepped outside of the light. Let's never do that. Whether it's, whether it's we've never obeyed the gospel, let's obey the gospel. I think everyone here are Christians. But sometimes Christians make mistakes. They step outside of the light. Let's never allow that to keep us from hearing you've been a faithful servant. We're a faithful servant when we obey the gospel. Just as as we said, those aren't my words. Never take my word for it. That's what the Bible says. Let's teach that, the truth, in love. And let's present that to people, hopefully and prayerfully. They will accept that. Let's give them an opportunity to be added to the Lord's church. And let's do that. Let's work together doing that. And then at times, sometimes we need a little help from each other. Sometimes we need some encouragement from each other. Sometimes we need each other's prayers in case we've done something we should not have done. And we need to repent of that, make that good confession, whether publicly or privately. Ask God to forgive us and He'll do it. And then we remain in the light. That's where we want to be. 
If you find yourself this evening in need to answer this Lord's invitation, we find all of this information from the hated truth. But see, we love that truth. Let that be known as we stand and as we sing.